0: So let's take a look first at Thurgood Marshall and for these individual readings, I am reading from books for younger people. I'm a person that's visual. I like uh, information that I can grab and obtain very quickly, especially if I want to do, if you want to do like devotionals, a quick read to learn about something that maybe you didn't know before. These kinds of books are always helpful to do that. So that's why I'm reading from them. Um, But I recommend them for young people. If you are trying to educate middle schoolers, high schoolers, even early elementary, um, you have, you know, children that are advanced readers in your house and you want to get them some information that is um, age appropriate, but also just visually appealing. (laughs) Uh, Most people these days, they want some visuals. And so these kinds of books are really good for that. All right, this one is called Young, Gifted, and Black too. There, This is the um, second one in the series. All right, so let's look at Thurgood Marshall as we open up here. Thurgood Marshall lived from 1908 to 1993. He was the first African-American to serve as Supreme Court Justice. He was a lawyer and a civil rights leader. Thurgood Marshall played a critical role in confronting legal segregation in the United States and advancing equal justice for all. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon. Um, most people are probably now familiar with Thurgood due to the movie that was done where I believe Chadwick Bozeman, I think he played Thurgood in the film. Thurgood Marshall was born in Baltimore, Maryland. As a child, he was a gifted student and leader on the school debate team. Dinner time discussions with his father helped to fuel his passion for logic and law. He was also a little mischievous and after one incident of mischief at school, he was made by his family to memorize the entire United States Constitution. Who knew (laughs) that that punishment was going to lead him to where where he eventually wound up. He went on to study law at Howard University and graduated at the top of his class He then began to work for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, also known as the NAACP. He spent over two decades at the NAACP, arguing and winning many cases that fought racism, that fought against policies of segregation and discrimination. His work helped to secure and defend the rights of people of color, earning him the nickname, Mr. Civil Rights. In 1967, President Lyndon B. Johnson nominated Thurgood for the Supreme Court, the nation's highest court of justice, where he served until he retired in 1991. Um, And he was replaced by somebody who is still doing harm to the black community to this day. I don't want to call his name, but we know who he is. (laughs) So he served until he retired in 1991, three years before his death. All right. Thurgood's legal vision was based on doing the right thing. He once said, you do what you think is right and let the law catch up. Hmm. Whew. Where are those justices today? <laughs> you do what you think is right and let the law catch up. Isn't that interesting? All right, our second person that we're looking at today is George Washington Gibbs Jr., he lived from 1916 to 2000, right? And here is the animated visual of George Washington Gibbs Jr. And let's find out some interesting history on him. George Washington was a naval officer and he was a pioneer. He became the first African-American sailor to reach Antarctica, receiving the, civil, the silver, excuse me, U.S. Antarctic Expedition Medal. Now, I never heard of him. Um, I've heard of George Washington Carver, but I never heard of George Washington Gibbs Jr. Born in Jacksonville, Florida, George enlisted in the U.S. Navy at just 19. Four years later, he was selected to join an expedition to Antarctica. Due to racist policies in the U.S. Navy at the time, the only position he could hold was mess attendant. His duties included cooking and cleaning. George was frustrated by his lack of options and the racism he faced, but the opportunity to set foot on the frozen lands of Antarctica was one he had to take. Throughout the expedition, George rose to every challenge and was praised for his energy and loyalty. After the expedition, George fought in World War II surviving the torpedoing of his ship and helping others stay alive too. He left the U.S. Navy in 1959 and went on to earn a university degree and have a successful career in business. He became a civil rights organizer and never stopped challenging unfairness and racial discrimination. Gibbs' point on the Antarctic Peninsula is named in his honor. So he's got a place on the peninsula named in his honor. Has anybody here heard of George Washington Gibbs Jr.? Are you today's old finding out about him? Let me know in the comments. Where's his movie? <laughs> That's what I want to know. Where's his movie? All right. Last person in our series for today, France Fanon. France Fanon. France Omar Fanon was a French West Indian psychiatrist and thinker whose writings explored and criticized racism and colonialism. A lot of people have, most people have heard of France Fanon, um, or if you haven't heard of him, you've probably heard of his writings. A descendant of enslaved Africans, France was born in Martinique in the Caribbean, a French colony at the time. At 18, France moved to France to fight in World War II, and later studied medicine and psychiatry there. Throughout his life, France experienced and witnessed racism, colonized people, black soldiers, and everyday black citizens were treated unjustly. France wrote many books on the subject, including Black Skin, White Mask, which is pretty well known, um, and The Wretched of the Earth, which is also another known work of his. He later moved to Algeria in Africa, another French colony, and spent his last year's fighting for its independence. Despite his short life, he died at 36. Francis's legacy is far-reaching. He became a hero in the anti-colonial and anti-racist struggle. His work has inspired many thinkers and activists and influenced liberation movements in Ghana, the United States, South Africa, and elsewhere. Francis quoted as saying, when we revolt, it's not for a particular culture. We revolt simply because, for many reasons, we can no longer breathe. Very interesting that he would use that phrase way before that phrase became an anthem for injustice. All right. Again, the book is Young, Gifted, Black, Too. 52 Black Icons from the Past and Present. Also, another recommendation for you if you are looking for um, Who Did It First. This is another one. This has not just African um, inventors and scientists, but people from all over the world. Excellent, excellent, excellent book. And I want to get to our next writing. This is coming from Black Voices an anthology of African-American literature. We have kind of been moving around in here, not in any particular order, but we've read some poetry. We're gonna read um, a poem today. And then we're gonna look at Alan Locke's work, The New Negro in an excerpt from there. Today's poem is coming to us from Dudley Randall. Dudley Randall lived from 1914 to the year 2000 He was born in Washington, D.C., and he was a prominent um, member of the Detroit group of Negro poets. He received his Bachelor's of Art in English from Wayne State in 1949, and his Master's degree in Library Science from the University of Michigan in 1951. He published poems, short stories, and articles in numerous journals. In 1962, he won a Tompkins Award for Poetry From 1962 to 1964, he worked with Margaret Danner and other Negro poets in the Boone House Cultural Center in Detroit. In 1965, Randall founded the Broadside Press, focusing on publishing young black poets. In 1986, he was awarded a senior fellowship by the National Endowment for the Arts. And in 1981, he was appointed the first poet laureate of the city of Detroit. Four of his poems are following um, and we're only going to take a look at one of them. And I wanted to take a look at this one because I feel like we're still having this conversation, in especially in the Black community, about the benefit of pushing people into intellectual fields, science, technology, engineering, etc., versus pushing people into um, trade-centered feels and so he has a poem called Booker T and W.E.B and it reads it seems to me said Booker T it shows a mighty lot of cheek to study chemistry and Greek when Mr. Charlie needs a hand to hold the cotton on his land and when Miss Ann looks for a cook why stick your nose inside a book I don't agree said W.E.B if I should have the drive to seek knowledge of chemistry or greek i'll do it charles and miss anne can look another place for hand or cook some men rejoice in the skill of hand and some in cultivating land but there are others who maintain the right to cultivate the brain it seems to me said booker t that all you folks have missed the boat who shout about the right to vote and spend vain days and sleepless nights in uproar over civil rights. Just keep your mouth shut, do not grouse, but work and save and buy a house. I don't agree, said W. E. B. For what can property avail if dignity and injustice if dignity and justice fail, excuse me, unless you help to make the laws, they'll steal your house with trumped up claws. A rope's as tight, a fire as hot, No matter how much cash you've got, speak soft and try your little plan. But as for me, I'll be a man. It seems to me, said Booker T. I don't agree, said W.E.B. Very, very interesting um, poem because he makes a point of saying, if you work, if you work hard, right, and... You do what you think is necessary in this world and in this life to obtain things for your life, for your family. He's making the point that unless you help to make the laws, unless you help to make the policies, everything that you've worked for can be snatched away from you through policy. Now, this poem was written a very, very long time ago. But we're in 2024 and i would venture to say that both things are needed but there is definitely a point to be made about if you do not pay attention to laws and policies you will look up and you will find everything stripped from you and i think we are seeing that in real time like this is not conjecture anymore this is actually happening Laws are being created to restrict and and roll back people's basic rights. And so I think that is a very good point to think on. Yes, you want to um, encourage people to get out there, to earn, to work, to strive, to do well, to um, be able to work with your hands. But there is something to be said for having the right to cultivate your brain. There is something to be said for having the right to read and read freely, unhindered and unrestricted in your learning. Um, So that's just something to to think about. Again, the poem is called Booker T and W.E.B. And it's written by Dudley Randall if you want to look him up. Let's go now to Alan Locke. Alan Locke is known as, some call him the father of the Renaissance period because of his work entitled The New Negro. And I'm trying to see if they have a little bit of a biography about him. They do. Alan Locke lived from 1886 to 1954. As a philosopher, writer, critic, scholar in the social sciences, Cultural mentor and editor of The New Negro, the landmark collection of writing which registered the arrival of the Negro Renaissance, Alan Locke was a major force and figure in the development of modern Negro American literature and culture. Born in Philadelphia, Alan Leroy Locke was educated at the Philadelphia School of Pedagogy at Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar and at the University of Berlin. He received his PhD from Harvard in 1918. For 41 years, he was associated with Howard University where he became professor of philosophy and head of the department of philosophy. He was exchange professor uh, at Fisk University in 1927, inter-American exchange professor to Haiti in 1943, and a visiting professor at the University of Wisconsin in 1945 to 1946. He founded the Associates in Negro Folk Education, edited a series of bronze booklets, and throughout his life, combined studies in philosophy, education, the social sciences, and the arts with wide ranging studies on the Negro and American culture. He published pioneer studies on Negro writers and literature and on African and Negro American art, drama, and music. You could say that without his writing, we would not have um, the curation that we have to know what was what during that time because he was a major part of that and a major part of documenting these people. Two of his essays of the 1920s follow. The first appeared in The New Negro in 1925 and the second appeared originally in Carolina Magazine. So I'm going to read you the start of the first, the second one, The Negro in American Culture. And then I'm going to open up for discussion. As I'm reading, I want you to think about how much of this is still true about us. Have we progressed beyond this point or are we still sort of at the beginning of this realization that we are a different people, that we're not trying to be stuck in the past, but we are trying to move forward. And then listening to what he says, think about have we actually moved beyond this point that he's pointing out. The position of the Negro in American culture is indeed a paradox. It almost passes understanding how and why a group of people can be socially despised, yet at the same time, artistically esteemed and culturally influential can be born in oppressed minority and a dominant cultural force. Whew. Just say law. <laughs> that is a paradox. An oppressed people, but yet a dominant cultural force. I'm going to keep reading. Yet this is their position, at least at present. Some of the most characteristic American things are Negro or Negroid. Derivatives of the folk life of this darker tenth of the population. And America at home basks in their influence thrives upon their consumption and vulgarization and abroad at least must accept their national representativeness. This because these things are among the most distinctive products of the American soil and because too they have a contagious and almost irresistible hold upon human psychology. Since being soundly primitive they are basically and universally human Even now, much of what is characteristically Negro is representatively American. And as the contemporary cultural and artistic expression of the Negro spirit develops, this will be so more and more. Mm, I think I said Negro too many times. (laughs) Unfortunately, but temporarily, what is best known are the vulgarizations. And of these jazz and byproducts are the ascendancy. Can you imagine back then they thought jazz was vulgar music? What would they say today? (laughs) We must not, cannot disclaim the origin and characteristic quality of jazz. It is an important racial derivative, but it does not follow that it is spiritually representative. It is in the first place, not a pure Negro folk thing, but a hybrid product of the reaction of the elements of Negro folk song and dance upon popular and general elements of contemporary American life. Jazz is one third Negro folk idiom, one third ordinary middle-class American idea and sentiment, and one third spirit of the machine age, which more and more becomes not American But occidental. Because the basic color of the mixture is negro, we attribute jazz more largely than we should to negro life. Rather we should think of it this way, jazz represents negro life in its technical elements, American life in general in its intellectual content. This may seem an unwarrantable statement and will remain so for those who only know American life superficially The truth becomes evident however only to those who contrast the pure and serious forms of negro art which are less known with the popular vulgarized forms with which the modern vogue of jazz are world known the serious folk art of the older negro generation is best represented by the so-called spirituals a body of real and genuine folk song of great musical and spiritual importance. While the serious art which can best represent to the world, the Negro of the present generation is contemporary Negro poetry. In this article, we shall use Negro poetry as a means of indicating the present cultural position of the Negro in American life. who wee <laughs> Alan Locke said, let me correct y'all because if you wanna talk about what is real and what is true, he said the closest thing to the original sound is gonna be coming out of the spirituals. And he says that jazz was only a third part Negro. I wonder what he would think of jazz today. Properly to do so, we should first see a little of the historical background Slavery for generations, the lot of nine-tenths of the Negro population, put upon the Negro the conditions and stigma of a peasant class, conditions which as economic and civic handicaps and as race prejudice still hamper. In spite of considerable improvements, the position of the Negro masses emancipated only since 1863. In spite of rapid assimilation of American standards and ways of life, and phenomenal educational advance, only 11% of the Negro population is now illiterate. Ooh, child. I wonder, somebody go, sign me the stat now. (laughs) Cause it's definitely more than 11%. And in spite of much philanthropic interest and help from a minority of the white population, the general attitude of public opinion in America has set the Negro off to himself as a class apart. It has been an inconsistent ostracism from the beginning, even under the slave regime. For then, while the Negro was most despised, he was as domestic menial, ensconced in the very heart of the family life of the land-owning aristocracy, a situation which accounts in part for his rapid assimilation of American modes. Since emancipation, American race prejudice has been just as capricious. It has segregated the Negro socially, but not culturally in the broad sense of the word culture. And while making him a submerged class economically and politically, has not isolated or differentiated his institutional life. The consequence has been that the Negro of today is a typical American with only a psychological sense of social difference. A minority that having no political vent for its collective ambitions, since political participation and equal rights are the goal of its practical aspirations, has an enormous amount of accumulated self-determination. Now keep in mind, he is writing this before the Voting Rights Acts and all of that come into play. Social prejudice which was meant to hamper the Negro and which has hampered him in economic, political, and social ways has turned out to be a great spiritual discipline and a cultural blessing in disguise. For it has preserved the Negro sense of a peculiar folk solidarity, preserved the peculiar folk values and intensified their modes of expression so that now they stand out in the rather colorless amalgam of the general population as the most colorful and distinctive spiritual things in American life. What is he saying? (laughs) The things meant to hamper the Negro turned out to be a blessing in disguise. The things meant to hamper black people is what made them distinctive. This is the root of the paradox we referred to at the beginning. The stone that was socially rejected in the practical aspects of the American democracy has become a cornerstone spiritually in the making of a distinctive American culture. For when America began to tire of being culturally merely a province of Europe, and turn to the artistic development of native things, among the most distinctive to hand were the folk things of the Negro, which prejudice had isolated from the materializing and standardizing process of general American conditions. And so as they began to, he's saying, as they began to turn from Europe to begin to look to traditions and things that could define Americanism, they began to turn to the things that they had initially rejected. And now we are actually in 2024 and we're kind of actually seeing the results of a hundred years of grasping hold to black culture and as he said here, standardizing it into a general American culture. This is why many times we can say Black history is American history. This is why many times when people think American, they think Black culture and not even realize that they're actually thinking Black culture and tying it to American culture when it's Black culture. You know, all of those sayings they have on TikTok that they're now trying to say are millennial sayings when it's actually African-American vernacular English. That's an example. Our culture gets ingrained into mainstream culture. Now, many times we are not given credit for that, right? The latest iteration is the the Kelsey or the Kelsey's haircut, which black people have been doing for mm, at least 50, 60 years, that haircut, also known as the fade in the black community. But now it has been dubbed what? It has been Americanized. (laughs) It has been brought into the general public vernacular It has been renamed the Travis Kelce's haircut. That's a perfect example of what he is detailing here. Things that have been a part of our culture for decades has been grafted in now to where people go to barbershops and ask for the Travis Kelce. Not the fade. All right. That concludes my reading for today. I want to thank you for tuning in and thank you for your time and attention. If you want to chop it up with me, we can come and chop it up on screen here. You should have a green camera. There are There's a button that has a two-person there. And if you want to um, share or discuss what we've talked about today, we've read um, a poem about W.E.B. E. Du Bois versus um, Booker T and their Ideas about how black people should operate in America. We have read um, Alan Locke's work, part of his work on the black American culture or Negro American culture. And then we have also looked at three figures today. All right. So we've got about 15, 20 minutes here to chop it up. If you want to come and respond, click on the two person They're not giving you a camera. Hmm, That's interesting because they're giving me a camera on your side. So let me see if I can add you. And if you're listening by Google Play or Spotify, I want to thank you for your time and attention. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues. And I've been your host today, Shante Charles. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So continue to go out and be light. Signing off to my podcast, viewers, listeners.